0: Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson. You're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. Have you ever been betrayed by someone? Somebody that you trusted someone that you believed had your best interests in heart, and through a shocking turn of events, that person that you trusted in proved that perhaps he or she was not worthy of your trust in the first place, maybe through words that cut like a knife to your heart, maybe through an action or an association that demonstrated that perhaps they didn't care for you the way you thought that they did an act of betrayal that sort of makes you reinterpret everything that you knew or thought you knew about that relationship i think at some level most of us who've lived for more than a few years have probably experienced something like that and i think some for sure, have probably harder stories that they could tell along these lines. makes you question everything, right? It makes you question, was this person ever really my friend? Or was this person ever really interested in me for who I am? Did our relationship change, or was it never really what I thought it was? So you start looking at history with these kind of new lenses and wondering... What had come about? Well, our walk with Jesus to the cross in John's Gospel takes a dark turn in the passage that we look at today, and it raises just these kinds of questions regarding the most notorious of Jesus' twelve disciples, Judas Iscariot. A name that has not inappropriately become synonymous with betrayal, with a turn of heart against a friend. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, I'll invite you to turn to John's Gospel in the New Testament, the fourth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we are in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. If you don't have your own copy of the Bible, there are several Bibles laying around probably near you. You are welcome to uh, look at one of those. If you don't own a copy of the scriptures, you are welcome to take one of those and make it yours uh, permanently. So, in John's Gospel, as you, if you've been with us, you, you recall, John's Gospel is divided into two big chunks. The first 12 chapters are what some have called the book of signs. And in that 12 chapters, John records for us seven miraculous signs of the Lord Jesus that were intended to identify Jesus as the Son of God. And in fact, that's why he calls them signs, because they were pointing to the reality of who Jesus is. We didn't just perform miracles to be impressive. We didn't just perform miracles to be kind, although they are impressive and they are kind. He performed these miracles to authenticate, to prove, if you will, that he is who he says he is. And he says, I have come from God. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. That is the long-awaited One that God had anointed to bring salvation to His people. And chapters 13 through 21 are what are known as the Book of Glory. Glory because it focuses on the last days of Jesus' life leading up to the cross. And so we have uh, the sort of passion narrative, if you will, the Holy Week narrative, and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ recorded in these last few chapters. And so it's known as the book of glory. So over the first 12 chapters, we saw roughly three years of Jesus' life. In these final ten or so chapters, nine or ten chapters, we will see about a week. So the camera zooms way in and the timeline stretches way out. So we spend a lot of time, intimate time with Jesus and His disciples as He is getting ready to, gener- to go to the cross. So He gives a lengthy speech to them, kind of helping to prepare them for what's coming. And then, of course, we see uh, the events of the cross and resurrection unfold. So in John chapter 13, what we looked at last week is... The same setting today 's text is just a continuation of this setting where Jesus is with his disciples sharing supper before the Passover. So this is the time of Passover, when Israel remembered god 's deliverance of his people from Egypt. Not a coincidence that this is the time that Jesus would go to the cross as the sacrificial lamb. John the Baptist said of Jesus in John chapter 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, here at Passover time, Jesus is getting ready to offer Himself up as this sacrificial Lamb. And when Jesus gathered with His disciples, He, during dinner, did something very strange. Shocking even to the disciples. He washed their He one by one went to each disciple. He said He took off His outer garment and wrapped a towel around His waist and filled a basin with water. And then one by one went to the disciples and washed their feet, which was a job that the Jews reserved for slaves. And not even Jewish slaves were even allowed to do this. It was usually set aside for even Gentile slaves. Too low for the Jewish people to do. And yet, Jesus... The rabbi, the teacher, the master has stooped himself to the position of a slave when he's washing the feet of the disciples, which is an incredible act of humility. But that wasn't the biggest point. The biggest point of what Jesus is doing in the washing of the disciples' feet is not just pointing out how humble he is, and not just calling His disciples to be as humble as He is in serving one another, though He did that. He said, as I have done to you, you should do to one another. So He certainly gives an example for humble service. But the main thing that Jesus was doing in the washing of His disciples' feet was providing a symbol for the cleansing from sin that He was about to provide through His death on the cross. The washing of the disciples' feet was a parable of sorts pointing toward the forgiveness of sin that would only be available through the death of Jesus on the cross. He told them after He washed His feet that they were completely clean. And then He instructed them to follow His example. You may remember we said last week that if you want to be... uh, I can't remember how I said it now. I lost it on my page. <laughs> if you Here it is. If you want to share in His endless life, you must be cleansed by the cross of Christ. There's a little rhyming couplet for you. Maybe help you remember the message of that first chunk of John 13. So, he says you are completely clean. But, then the first words of verse 18 make plain that the assurance of cleansing and the commission to carry on Jesus' work was not intended for at least one guy in the room read with me John 13 verses 18 through 30 i'll be reading from the english standard version you just follow along in your copy of the scriptures beginning in John 13:18 i am not speaking of all of you i know whom i have chosen but the scripture will be fulfilled He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, Truly, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. This is a dark chapter in the story. For sure. Jesus has invested three years of his life in these twelve men. And now we find, as we've had hints throughout John's Gospel, we find that Judas is willing to not just turn away, but to turn against Jesus and to be an instrument of his destruction. At least that's what the devil intends. But what's interesting here is that in these first couple of verses, verses 18 through 20, Jesus doesn't make an explicit prediction of Judas' betrayal. We only, know, we only know what he's talking about because we already know what happens, right? We have the, the, the retrospective uh, position to be able to say, oh, we know that Judas is going to betray him. So when he says these kind of enigmatic things, we know he's talking about Judas's betrayal. But the disciples don't know that. The disciples don't know that Judas is going to betray him. And in fact, these, these predictions he begins to make before he says very plainly, one of you will betray me, are veiled enough that they don't quite understand what's going on. But there are some very significant things to notice in how this story unfolds. In particular, I think the story of Judas' betrayal of Jesus tells us two huge, important things about God and salvation. The way that Judas's betrayal of Jesus unfolds and is recounted to us by John tells us two essential things about who God is and how He works and about our salvation. The first big truth that we see in the midst of this unfolding is that God is sovereign over human sin and the work of the devil. God is sovereign over human sin and the work of the devil. The word sovereign means that he has the power and the authority to do whatever he pleases. Power and authority kind of sums up what we mean by sovereignty. He has the right and the might to make happen what he intends, what he desires. Far from human sinful choices and even the work of Satan opposed to God and his people, far from those things somehow derailing God's plans or painting God into a corner where He's got to figure out what He's going to do to make His plans come to pass, we find a tangible expression in this passage of God's sovereign control and interaction with human sin and the work of the devil. Now, we need to be careful how we word this because we are not Charging God with sin. When we say God is sovereign over human sin, we're not saying God Himself is guilty of sin. The Scriptures are extremely clear about that. Yet, God in His providence, and the way He works with His creation and His creatures, works in and among our fallenness and our sin to such a degree that even the most sinful acts in all of human history accomplish His sovereign and saving purposes. I don't think Judas' betrayal is the most heinous sin in history, but I think it's among the top few. And certainly, the wrongful execution of the innocent Son of God would rank at the top of the list of human sin if we're going to give them degrees and rank sins. Putting Jesus Christ on a cross and murdering him would take the top of the list. And yet, we learn from the Scriptures over and over, this was the plan of God. Peter tells his audience in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So even the most heinous and spectacular of human sins falls under the sovereign reign and control of God let's look at how we see this unfold with respect to Judas in this text. First of all, notice Judas is personally responsible for his own sin. In Matthew's recounting of this story, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says that the scriptures will be fulfilled and these things will happen as it was written but woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for Him if He had never been born. Judas, obviously, is the one who betrays the Son of Man. That is, Jesus Himself. And Jesus basically utters a prophetic curse upon Him. Woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better that He had never been born except uh, less to experience what he will experience in retribution because he is accountable for his sin. Judas acts of his own will. Judas makes a decision. We've seen hints of that all the way throughout John's Gospel. Even just a few verses earlier in John 12, as Mary broke this expensive perfume and poured it on Jesus' feet, Judas was the one who went, hey, 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 we should give that money to the poor. Look at how wasteful she's being. And John tells us, Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor. He said this because he had been stealing from the treasury of the disciples. And he was watching his money go to waste. So we know that Judas has a darkened heart already. We know that Judas is simply carrying out his own sinful desires. So Judas is personally responsible for his sin. So to say that God is sovereign over Judas's sin is not to say that God causes Judas to sin. Or that Judas is somehow no longer morally accountable for his sin. So Judas is personally responsible. Secondly, Judas is influenced by Satan. Judas' betrayal of Jesus is influenced by Satan. All the way back in John 6, verse 70, Jesus said of his disciples, I have chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. So already, at that point, well before Judas' betrayal of Jesus, he is identifying one of them, associating one of them with the devil and the work of the devil. At the beginning of chapter 13, which we read last week, verse 2, it says, During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, Jesus rose from supper. Right. So the devil has put into Judas's heart betrayal. Judas has... The inclination by his own sin. And then the devil just maybe gives him an idea. Hey, here's a way to carry that out. And he puts into his heart, maybe into his mind, the idea of betraying Jesus. And so we read again from other gospel accounts that Judas makes a deal with the chief priests. If you'll pay me, I'll tell you where he is. I'll lead you to him. And so they pay him 30 pieces of silver. It's not a huge amount. So, the devil has put it in his heart, and then look at verse 27 that we just read a few minutes ago. This says it as strongly as it could possibly be said. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. There is a strong demonic influence in Judas' life at this point. So Judas is personally responsible. He makes his own choice. He acts according to his own sinful desire. But he's also influenced by the devil. So if human sin and the work of the devil are involved in Judas betraying the Son of Man, betraying Jesus, does that indicate that God is sort of somehow out of His depth here? That, God, that the wheels are coming off And God's got to figure out how to put the thing back together while it's driving. No. Because Judas' betrayal is a part of God's plan. Judas' betrayal is a part of God's plan. First of all, Jesus is not caught off guard here. In verse 18, he said to his disciples, I know whom I have chosen. He said, I'm not speaking to all of you. When he said you're completely clean, go and do likewise. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I've chosen. In other words, I'm well aware that one of my hand-selected disciples is up to no good. I know what's going on. In fact, this statement strongly suggests that Jesus knew what Judas would do on this night, even back when He chose him three years ago. At least a year, maybe more than that ago, when Jesus fed the 5,000 multitude and He said to His disciples, I've chosen you and one of you is a devil. He knew that far back What was going on? So Jesus isn't caught off guard by this. We don't see Jesus wringing His hands and going, oh no, what's going to happen? What am I going to do? He's ready for it. He knows that this is the case, which is an indication that this is part of God's plan. Secondly, Judas' betrayal fulfills Scripture. That's crazy to me. Jesus says right there. In verse twenty. One. Nope, 23. I'm sorry, that's not where it is. He quotes Psalm 41.9. I don't know where it happened. There it is. It's back in verse 18. I know who I've chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. And then he quotes Psalm forty one nine. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. The exact quote of Psalm forty one nine is, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Lifted his heel, as in to turn direction. That is, to turn against Jesus. Even my close friend who has eaten my bread has turned his heel against me. That's a prophecy. It had its own meaning at the time it was written, but Jesus cites it as pointing forward to this day when Judas would turn his heel against Jesus. Jesus himself. So Judas' betrayal is a fulfillment of Scripture, which is intended to show God's faithfulness and his wisdom from long ago. He knew this was going to happen. I'm going to put Psalm 41.9 here, just as a bookmark, so that when the betrayal of Judas happens, you go, oh look, he already talked about that. It's a fulfillment of God's word. God's not painting himself into a corner here. The wheels are not coming off. And finally, we see that Jesus expects this fulfillment to lend credibility to His own identity. Verse 19, He says, I'm telling you this now, so that when it takes place, you may believe that I am He. Which means, I am the one who I have been saying that I am. He said the very same thing to the woman at the well. I, who am speaking to you, am He. That is, the Christ, the Son of God. So he seems to think that when his disciples become aware that what he's talking about is the betrayal of Judas, then they go, oh, he knew about that all along? Oh, he's been planning this all along? This is a part of God's purpose? That they're going to go, wow, Jesus is the Son of God. So this is not thwarting God's plan. It's forwarding God's plan. It's advancing His purposes. So... Humans, in their sin, and Satan himself, unwittingly serve the sovereign purposes of God. There's no human wickedness and no act of the devil that can thwart what God wants to do. God's plans for all of human history and for the establishing of His kingdom cannot be changed. Which is why Jesus can say in Matthew 16 to His disciples, The gates of hell will not prevail. I will build my church. He knows. No sin, no demonic influence is going to thwart the plan of God. And in fact, because God is sovereign over human sin and the work of the devil, they will even unknowingly, unintentionally serve His purposes. Here's a couple of maybe encouragements that I think we can gain from this so that we're not just theologizing here. First of all, your own sin does not thwart the purposes of God. Lest you think I've messed up so bad that God can't do anything with my life. Or that I've forever missed the plan A that God had for me and now the best I can do is some kind of plan C consolation prize because I've messed up so much, gone so far astray. That's not how God works. Human sin doesn't push God off of his tracks. God accomplishes his purposes. And guess what? He even accomplishes them through human sin. doesn't mean he does the sin or he's guilty of the sin, but he is right there working intimately, intricately, wisely with our sinful choices to accomplish exactly what He intends. So if you are worried that God has no room for me anymore in His kingdom, God has no use for me because of how messed up I am, that's not the case. God will use even your deepest sins to accomplish His purposes. And the second encouragement I think we can take is this, is that your endurance of the sins of others against you won't be wasted. Because we all endure sins of other people, right? People sin against us. Often, i was going to say all the time, that might be an overstatement, but often we are sinned against in word, in deed, in perhaps betrayals just like the one we're talking about with Judas. When we are forced to endure sin against us that hurts and that distracts us and that confuses us, we can know with confidence that God hasn't forgotten. God didn't like let something slip and go, oh no, i got to figure out how to pick up the pieces. God is going to work even through others' sins against you. Maybe He's going to work to strengthen your own character. Maybe His purpose through that sin is to teach you to trust Him more. Or to teach you to humble yourself. Or to receive criticism or correction. Maybe there's something that God wants to do in your life and character and heart specifically that He'll only do through someone else sinning against you. Maybe it's something bigger or broader than that. But God is at work in 10,000 ways all the time, as John Piper says, and we can see maybe three of them. God is at work in way more ways than we have any idea. And you can be sure that human sin is among the things that He's at work in. And the work of the devil. Satan is not, uh, does not have power over God. In fact, Jesus is going to say to His disciples later in the chapters that we'll come to soon uh, that He who is in the world has been defeated. He says, take heart, I've overcome the world. God is sovereign over human sin and the work of the devil. Is the first big thing I think we learn from this story. Here's the second thing. And this is probably more like directly, personally appropriate, needed for us. Beware of the deadly potential of false faith. Beware the deadly potential of false faith. Consider this. Judas had the best pastor. Sorry, I'm not nearly as good as Judas's pastor. Jesus Himself pastored Judas and the Twelve for these three years. Judas had an intensive discipleship program. Three years living with Jesus and these other disciples. Going everywhere they went. Sharing everything that they had. Seeing Jesus perform miracles Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Feed multitudes with lunchables. They saw amazing things. They heard amazing things. They were there for all of Jesus' teachings. The Sermon on the Mount, which is regarded as probably the best sermon of all time, Judas was there for that. He heard the Sermon on the Mount. Judas had the best discipleship program that there could ever be. Judas was actively serving in his church. John tells us that he was the treasurer for the disciples. So he had a role with the disciples to to guard the money bag and to make sure that the money that came in and went out was doing what it was supposed to do. John also told us that he probably wasn't doing that in a very honest way. But he was serving. He had an active role in the church, if you will. Judas' friends all seemed to think he was legit. When Jesus says to them, one of you is going to betray me, it doesn't say that they all looked at Judas and went, I bet it's that guy. We all knew this was coming. It said they had no idea what he was talking about. And they looked around. Who is he, he talking about? In Matthew's version of this, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, Matthew records that the disciples all began to ask, is it I, Lord? Is it, is it I? best pastor, intensive discipleship, active in his church, his friends in the church all think he's on the right track. And yet Judas in the end walked away from the faith. Turned against Jesus and was condemned to hell. I think that's what Jesus means by woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had never been born. If it's possible for Judas, it's possible for me. It's possible for you. There is a strong warning here to us in the example of Judas. Theologically speaking, Judas provides for us a category for people who claim or seem to be Christians, but who eventually walk away from the faith. Have you ever known anybody like that? And I thought they would never leave. I thought that would never happen. I grew up in Southern Baptist churches. We're a Southern Baptist church. We're not trying to hide that. I know it's not in our name. We're a Southern Baptist church. I grew up in SBC churches, and the emphasis in the churches I grew up in was so much on the moment of decision. Walk an aisle, pray a prayer, get baptized, maybe even check a box on a decision card. I decided to follow Jesus, right? The moment of decision was so emphasized that they ended up with a flimsy, fluffy definition of, uh, or doctrine of perseverance. Which basically said, whatever happens after the moment of conversion cannot undo what was done in that decisive moment. That's where once saved, always saved comes from. If you prayed that prayer, if you walked that aisle, if you invited Jesus into your heart and you meant it, always say that. Doesn't matter what the rest of your life looks like. Doesn't matter if there's absolutely no evidence that a person ever cared about the things of God or walked with him at all, even a deathbed denial, it's all false. Doesn't matter he made that decision. There's this emphasis on the moment of decision that leads to a totally anemic doctrine of perseverance. There's not even any room in some circles for for considering The persevering in faith, that is the continuing in, actively pursuing God as an assurance, if you will, of a person's relationship with God. The example of Judas shows us that once saved, always saved is not enough. Judas affirmed the gospel at some point. Judas followed Jesus. Judas was committed to the faith community and was ultimately damned. It wasn't enough to walk the aisle or check the box or pray the prayer. Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. Just a few chapters later in John's Gospel, Jesus Himself will say in His high priestly prayer, While I was with them, I kept them in Your name, which You have given Me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except The son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas is the son of destruction. And the only reason Jesus lost him was because he never really had him in the first place, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, so that God would be seen to be true and faithful and in control over human sin and the work of the devil. We've got to be careful. Not to assume that because I made a choice at some point in my past, or I go to church, or whatever, that that means everything is A-OK with my relationship with God. <clears throat> when I was growing up, a thing that pastors used to say was, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. Just being somewhere, being in the presence of something, doesn't change the nature of who you are. There is a personal investment, a personal personal commitment, a personal transformation that the Gospel has to bring about in a person's life. Judas, though he was around all the right people, though he was discipled by the best possible disciple-maker, Jesus himself, though he was serving in his faith community, he never let the gospel reach his heart. He never let the good news change his nature. There was obviously at least a superficial embracing early on of the plan of Jesus, some some suggest that perhaps Judas expected Jesus to violently overthrow the Roman government and take back Jerusalem. And so he thought he was signing up for kind of a militia to like bring that about. And then he gradually became, became clearer that that wasn't what was going to happen. And so that disillusionment is what led to his ultimate betrayal of Jesus. We don't know exactly what's going on in Judas' mind, but we can tell That he didn't let the gospel reach his heart. He didn't humble himself and recognize his own brokenness and his own need for forgiveness and repent of his own sin and find in Jesus the one who he had been living with and hearing from and walking with for three years. Let Jesus change him from the inside out challenge that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians 13.5 I think is fitting. It's sobering, but it's fitting. He says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Don't look back 20 years to a box checked or an aisle walked and a prayer paid and just assume everything's good. Examine yourselves. Don't live an unexamined life Live a life that looks inward and takes stock of where you are. Here are a few questions that can be sort of markers, I think, to indicate that we've let and are letting the power of God in the Gospel reach us. Are you confessing and repenting of sin in your life? Do you have a pattern, a habit of being aware of your sin, confessing that sin to God and to others that you sinned against, and turning away from sin? Or do you dismiss it? Do you go, I already got forgiven. Not a big deal. God's cool with me clicking on this link because He's going to forgive me anyway. Is that what we're doing? Are you confessing and repenting of sin in your life? Are you trusting in the cleansing power of the cross? Jesus said very plainly in John 13, the first 17 verses, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. The washing that comes through our looking to the cross of Christ where He bore our sins. Where He took our penalty upon Himself. That's where cleansing comes. The moment that we say, not what I have, but what He has done. And we place our trust in Him and His death on the cross. Are you trusting in the cleansing power of the cross? Or are you hoping that you're Good efforts at trying to do a little better are going to be enough. Are you seeking God and His Word and in prayer? Are you spending time, investing time, trying to figure out how to craft your day to make sure that you have time to read the Scriptures and to talk to God? Or are we just too busy, just too tired? really would rather catch up with that show that I'm behind on. Are you pursuing growth and godliness through discipleship? Is a part of your life the regular meeting with brothers and sisters in Jesus who will call to you? Who will challenge you? Who will equip you to know and follow Jesus more intimately? Or are you stiff-arming people in your life? You go... This is close enough. Don't ask too many questions. Don't ask me to do too much. So I think the disciples' question, when Jesus said, One of you will betray me, is an appropriate question for us to ask. Namely, is it I, Lord? I think that's the question of self examination. That's the question that looks inward. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7 Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and prophesy in your name and I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. The tragedy of all of this is that I believe there are many, many, many people in American churches, probably churches other places too, this is the context I know, who think they and God are A-OK. Think, yep, I'm a Christian, I'm good to go, no problem. No problem. But in fact, they would be numbered among those who say to God in the last day, Lord, Lord, didn't I go to church a good number of times? Didn't I give some money to that charitable organization? Didn't I remain faithful to my wife? And he's going to say, I never knew you. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Beware the deadly potential of false faith. Now, the last thing I want you to take from this exhortation is this sense of, wow, I'm probably going to hell. Right? There's no hope for me. I must be a hypocrite and a mess. And good news is we're all hypocrites and messes. That's all God's got to work with. So examine, right? Examine yourself. Be reflective. Be willing to ask yourself hard questions. Have I really trusted in Jesus for salvation? Or am I still depending on my own righteousness? But remember the precious promises of the Gospel. Jesus Himself said to the disciples in Matthew 28, I will be with you even till the end of the age. In the Gospel, God promises His presence to us. That's the best news of the Gospel, by the way. Forgiveness of sins is great. Eternal life is great. Peace is great. But God's presence is the real hope of the Gospel. The real good news of the Gospel. And for those who are in Christ, those who are trusting in His life and death and resurrection to be their salvation, will not be put to shame. They will not be disappointed. So Let's just ask ourselves this question. So, let me wrap up. Here's the thing. While Judas was fulfilling God's plan and influenced by the devil in his betrayal of Jesus, he nevertheless carried out the schemes of his own sinful heart. We said earlier. Our hearts, our hearts contain all the same darkness. The same inclination towards selfishness, deceit, pride, bitterness, and sin that dwelt in Judas's heart. It's all there in ours, if we're honest. We've got all the same potential. And just as Satan whispered in Judas's ear, and influenced him to abandon the hope of eternal life and to turn against Jesus, you can be sure that he wants to influence you in the same way. He's still using today the same old schemes he's been employing for millennia. If you'll give him your ear, you can be sure that he will whisper deception and doubt to you as well. Did God really say? Don't give him the chance. Don't listen to that voice. And finally, though Judas ultimately, tragically, rejected Jesus Christ. The very same gospel grace was available to Him that is available to each of us today. Jesus provided a way for each of us to be forgiven of our sin and welcomed into the forever family of God. The only way to be truly saved is to come to the cross of Jesus for cleansing. Very cleansing that Judas himself missed out on. So let's be those who don't check a box and forget about it, who don't stiff-arm the people of God and keep them so far away, who refuse to look inward and acknowledge our own sin and our own need. Let's be those who run to the cross of Jesus Christ because we know of our need and because we find in His cross everything that we need to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and to bring us into God's presence.